Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, uh, coach of the University of Houston, author of Science of Running, joined by John Marcus, my buddy out in Oregon this time. We're not side by side, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> coach of High Performance West, philosopher of everything in life, and we have our, <laughs> our super special guest, um, one of our inspirations, I think, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Vern Gambetta with us. How are you doing, Vern? Thank you. Uh, legends are usually dead, so uh, that, that's <laughs> uh, It's great to be on. I, I, I love your guys' podcasts, it's, and I love all the uh, all the tweets and then the, the texts I get from you guys. They're very stimulating, very stimulating, so uh, it's good. It's an honor to be, be back on. So. Yeah, that's what it's all about. So... so yeah, I you know, and talking offline a little bit, we all kind of watched the trials. John and I were there. Vern was obviously watching. And it's the Olympic trials are like, I don't know, it's like no other event because it's a uh, you get to see where everyone's cards are. You get to see what everyone's doing. You get an evaluation of what coaches are doing, which is more important from our standpoint, I think, because you have this mass collection of coaches and you get to see the results right on 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 the page. So we figured we'd talk a little bit about coaches' education and maybe um, how do you define good coaching? Um, John, yeah. if you want to start off with anything, go for it. I think just my personal reflections on being and coaching at the trials. Um, you know, I've been a, a spectator, a fan in 2008 when it's been in Oregon, and then kind of a, a quasi administrator in 2012 and now the skin of the game of actually having athletes who had a relatively outside shot, but nonetheless an outside shot like many athletes who went there. It's to me in the most valuable coaching education clinic I've ever gone to essentially. <laughs> it was, you know, 11 days of being colleagues and friends who are either coaches or physios or athletes and the, managing their personal ups and downs, highs and lows. Um, and also, just seeing what their emotional quotient was for that type of crucible. You know, we talk a lot about preparation in terms of the physical environment and physical aptitude, but that, you know, pressure cooker really magnifies who was best emotionally prepared for that type of high stakes environment. And I think, you know, that, that there's something to be said for, having that as part of your game plan or part of your preparation plan. And you, 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 you saw it. I mean, a lot of people were really fit. I mean, a lot of people ran yeah. great yeah. after the trials and ran big PRs, yeah. you know, immediately after or through or jump big PRs in Europe. But yet in Eugene during those early days in July, just were complete non-factors. I mean, myself included, I had a young lady, like she was very fit, very capable, just laid an egg in the 10K, like just laid an egg. But then she came back and PR'd on the final day in the final of the 5K. I mean, and she yeah. PR'd through 3,000 meters en route in the middle of the race to a 5,000-meter PR. So it was like a double PR. I mean, so sure. her performance in the 10 was not because she lacked fitness. Right. It was right. something else. And it just I, I, I I think, repeated time and time again. I think that's a terrific point because – in, in, in my years of coaching, uh, two points that you make, but the first one in regard to physical preparation, I think I've, I've, I've not seen anybody not go there in peak fitness and physical preparation unless they were unless there was a, a niggling injury or they got hurt. You know, 
in a week or two before and we're trying to tough it out. And, and then the other, your other point about it being an incredible coaching clinic, I go back to my first Olympic trials uh, in, in 1972 in Eugene. And, uh, you know, I was still training a little bit. I was 5,000 points behind the world in the decathlon. And I had, I had friends competing, guys that I had trained with, you know, so I could see now, you know, you, what, what it was like. And, and I had never thought about it from that point of view. Certainly, they were, you know, uh, Bruce, a.k.a. Caitlyn Jenner, made the team, you know, in the, in, in the 1500. And, and there was guys that I trained with that were better than him, you know. But he withstood the pressure of what the trials was about. And, and if you want to get educated, if you want to be a, a, a track coach at the highest level, I, I think you need to go see that. Between that, for me, being the 72 trials, the 76 trials again, and then uh, going to the 76 games and being able to go spend every, literally every day before the competition that I was there at the practice track and watch how people left medals on the practice track or left finals on the practice track. And, why, and, and, and the, you know, then that was a day of the Eastern Europeans. So you finally got to see them come out from behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak. But that's a, I think that's a wonderful point that, that you know, you can – Go to all the coaching ed stuff you want. You can um, do all these things, but until you go there and you see what the what it's like and the and the pressure that that exists, there's not nothing like it. I, I'm pretty involved now, as you guys know, in swimming, and I, I didn't go to the trials, but you know, I was sweating it out day by day with some of the athletes that I work with, and you know, it's a similar it, it is a similar environment, and I. I encourage all the swim coaches that I work with to go to trials, to go to swim trials because of the same thing. And they, they said, a couple of them said the same thing, watching watching practice sessions where guys had great – what's going on right now? The swim team is is uh, just went to Atlanta today, and I'm reading things about great practice sessions. Hey, guys, great practice sessions between the trials and the Olympic Games don't win you medals, you know, and that's part of an education, but we all seem to have to learn it. So great point. Great yeah, point. it's it's interesting, and I think that kind of comes back to how we learn as coaches too because we, yeah. have, we have all these wonderful coaches' education systems and certifications and such, which yeah. maybe do a job of pre uh, preparing you technically, Um Informationally. Informationally. Yes. There we go. Informationally. We'll yes. talk about that in a minute. Come yeah. On. <laughs> it, 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 yes, that's a good word for it. <laughs> Informationally, like it gives you this knowledge, this book type, school type knowledge. But when you see it out on the field or out on the track, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, I remember this is my second trials now as a coach. And my first trials four years ago, it was like I walked away from that with my mind blown and being like, oh, my gosh, like yeah. I have to change some things how I do it sure. because this is sure. the environment that we need to get ready for. And I think 
from a, a training or coaching standpoint, it's really easy to be like, oh, like this is how it's done and this is what the books say and this is what we need to do. But then you get out there on the warm-up track or you get out there in Eugene, Oregon, and you're spending 11 days there doing nothing. Um, yeah. It yeah. brings out this whole different environment that you have to prepare for, which doesn't reading no book, like having some instructor tell you things isn't doesn't get the message across. Well, we also saw it too, um, just either also different coaches' emotional bandwidth as well. I mean, we have a lot of coaching colleagues in the distance sectors and a couple beyond. And I mean, one of my favorite stories of the trials was they were there to honor, you know, Steve's mentor, Tom Telez. And Steve just, or Steve and I are talking to Tom, and Tom's like, oh, yeah, I got this, uh, this kid, you know, javelin kid. I saw him throwing a football, you know, uh, around. And I said, hey, you probably could throw a javelin in. You know, Tom just kind of, as a hobby, coaches this guy up from just being a football <laughs> player randomly to throwing a javelin to making the Olympic trials. Yeah, he didn't, you know, wasn't the conversation to make the team, but it's like sure. that was one of the coolest moments of the trials was here's Tom yeah. Telez, the supposed sprint guru of Carl Lewis's coach, who's yeah. like, yeah, I just saw a guy throwing a football, and I said, yeah, it looks like that guy could throw, you know. <laughs> but then working with this kid technically, you know, getting him ready and getting yeah. him on the stage, I mean, that – reignited my passion in a lot of ways right. for not what happens in you know that environment is it's so commercialized in some regards where there's this huge yeah. financial incentive on the that these athletes are feeling this burden to make the team or if they don't make the team the consequences as such and sure. and here's tom just being that old school guru coach saying let's just coach people up and yeah. i mean that that, well, that was enough. fun to walk away from that there's not enough Tom Telezes. That's that's part of the problem, you know. That that still that have that deep, true passion for the sport, and uh, you know, and, and that. But one thing that I was going to say, and I've spoken to both of you and since the trials off offline, was this. And in regard to the middle distance and distance races, the 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 absolute complete lack of tactical awareness. Uh, in the races and, and particularly in the women's events, the falls that took place that, you know, where people are running up people's back and that kind of stuff. And I, I'll get on a rant, which I'd like you guys to react to, but, and cause we, we talk intermittently throughout the year and stuff. And there's too much pacing and too much time trials in the four years in between the, in between the trials and the games or the world championships and not enough racing. Set up time trial races. Don't get you ready to run tactical races. And I won't mention names, but I look at people. I looked at one guy in the 5,000, and I'm thinking, why in the hell isn't that guy just out there pushing the pace? You know, I mean, I, and again, I don't say if I were coaching because I don't know what went on. So I don't know a lot, of, you know, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But if I take a step back and I just go, this is, this is, absolutely incredibly stupid and it goes back even one step further to the collegiate and the high school system where in the in the collegiate environment you guys don't have steve you don't have dual meets anymore everybody puts down dual meets but that's when you learn how to run mono a mile you know there's four people in a race and it's about tactics i mean go back i'm not a big steve prefontaine fan but i saw a, a, a thing about 
his and I, and I I watched him run. I watched him run in dual meets, and and uh, sometimes he'd run three events, you know. And that was high quality training, but it was racing with tactics in mind. It wasn't necessarily to try to run for time. And in high school, these kids, you know, if you're if you're good right away, you go to Arcadia, and then you get in big meets, mm-hmm. or you get in open meets, or you don't run in state meet like the kid from in California. You know, and he goes over to Oxy and gets a fast time. Well, big deal. He was eighth place when he should have been California state champion and learn how to run. That's my rant. I'd like <laughs> actions. <laughs> no, well, let's go since you're still immersed in the NCAA's classic system. But, yeah. <laughs> no. no, but we're observers and we're products of that system, it, right? It, yeah. yeah. I mean, and it, it's you guys interesting. are younger, but I, I, I didn't compete in track in college, but I was – I, I was involved in it, and then I coached track in college and coached track in high school and developmentally. And where do you learn how to race if you're always in time trials? Yeah. You know, that's what it comes down to. It, so. And racing is a skill, and I think we forget that. It's, it's oh, a, huge. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tactic, and it's a skill that isn't developed. And, like, even from, you know, I've been out, we've been out of the high school game for a while, but, like, even since we were involved to now, it's a whole different ball game with, Oh, athletes going pro and every everybody goes to these five different meets to run really fast and all that stuff. And the other thing that you lose is athletes at this level is that they're used to even at the smaller races they're used to dominating everything. Yeah, and they don't learn how to run in packs. They don't learn how to run um, with others around them. And if you look at practice, it's worse too because all these people they get used to leading yeah. everything if they're a high school stud or on the college team stud. Or if not, at the post-collegiate world, it's like they're either catered to or um, or it's artificially set up where it's like, all right, all you guys get in a line and, like, <laughs> we're going to do this. Right. And this is what happens. And, you know, one of my favorite stories of seeing this to the absurd level is um, – with a coach who shall not be named, one time one uh, another athlete in the group, like just was feel, was feeling good and took I off. I saw it too. I and, saw it too twice. Yeah, and <laughs> took <time>. off. <laughs> and it's like you get reprimanded for for feeling yep. good at the end of, of the workout or making a surge. Here, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you passing this person? Like, why? Uh-huh. Like they're just slowing a little bit. Why are you you getting out of order? And it's yeah, like right, that right. The ideas like that, like take it where we look. And I think the problem is we, especially as distance coaches, we look at training from a physiological standpoint. Precisely. It's all about improving these, these physiological systems and then everyone else, everything else takes care of itself. And that's pure BS. It doesn't, yeah. you get athletes who can't, can't handle the emotional psychological component of it. And can't handle the tactics of racing and windmill their way through, you know, through finals. Right. Sure. I mean, and, and unfortunately, we have colleagues and friends who are victims of that. I mean, your roommates at the trials, Steve, I mean, you know, great runner. She was on fire this year, you know, looking awesome. Didn't even make it out of the round of the 5K with, you know, one of the better times going in from this season. And it wasn't because of, of lack of fitness. I think, you know, I... I definitely take responsibility in that setting up a lot of these time trial races for, you know, North American domestic competitive ops with all the meets I put on. And I mean, yeah, I'm always scrapping to get these pacers because we're in this age where 
the well, mark means everything right you have now. To play the game. You don't. Yeah. You don't you don't have a choice or you don't get in meets, you know? Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And so yet, I you prioritize if you've ran this mark once rather than a multi-time champion. And when I was in college recruiting, I always recruited the champion kid versus the fast kid because yep. I was oh. in a position where it's like, if I recruit the small school champion, they just know how to win and they will, they will be competitive and I can teach them. I can enhance their physical capacity. We can get them stronger. We can teach them tactics, but that knowing how to win that like fighting the tiger, that's something, unfortunately we as coaches have a difficult time developing. That's, that's a, you know, to use the long-term athletic development, um, yeah. uh, model, like that starts early and that starts with your parents. That starts your environment, like that knowing how to win and, and I, I tell my athletes this, it's, you look at the great basketball players and they want the ball in their hands with one second left to win right. the game. And right. that's, we get that moment every single time we compete. I mean, there's that gut check moment where it's like, all right, do I want to be in this position where it's challenging? It's very difficult. The outcome is unknown, but I'm looking forward to that point in the race. And then I'm going to see what everyone's made of. And honestly, we're just, because we are infatuated with this time trial and this artificial mark of oh, I ran this one time perfect yeah. or in some perfect environment we're creating a bunch of wimps and <laughs> you see it well, you see I people mean, better for you to say that than for me because uh, you know as an old man people I, I, I'm not because I, I hear and, and Steve I, I exactly what you said I mean I had I had a girl in high school I had a couple of kids that Cal and sent you know that was literally 45 seconds better than anybody else back in those days in the two mile 20 seconds better not 20 10 seconds better in the mile and same thing with some of my boys and we knew that that's fine for dual meets you know and and and, and league meets but once you go to CIF sections and state meet and so the whole goal all year was to try to put them in a position we just did every day at the end of at the end of practice whatever it was, whether it was a tempo run day or whatever, you did six to eight times a hundred meters. And that's when we would play games with them. You know, you're, we would put six kids around them and elbow them and kick them and, and, and play games where they had to burst out, you know, and, and I'm not saying it was, it was the best thing, but you, you, you got to teach them. And, and to your point, John Young, put them in, um, uncomfortable events, put them, yep. put them down. If it's an 800 meter runner, put them down in the 400 where they're going to get their ass kicked. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they learn how to, they, they learn how to, you know, um, uh, they learn how to lose, you know, they, they learn how to risk, right. Not always be, I mean, it's, not, I'm not saying you're in your comfort zone to run a PR, but it, it's, it's comfortable to, 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 to get, if you want to run a 355 mile, the front of 355, three miler and hang on to his belt, you know, for three and three quarter laps. It's a safe bet. I think, you know, what we're seeing now with all the, the physiological adaptations and the, you know, supposed hard science that we have to reaffirm these prescriptions of rep sets, intensities of volumes is people want the formula to success. And so in distance world, since we have a surplus of this literature, everyone's grasping onto this like okay all i have to do is increase someone's aerobic capacity you know somewhat stroke their central nervous system here and voila the cake's ready to go right out the oven and and it's not the sure bet and that's i remind people that's not sport sport is yeah. a you prepare and you know you everyone works hard but the outcomes in doubt always the outcomes unknown that's why we watch 
events because it's yeah. unscripted. We don't know if someone's going to come back from a 10 meter deficit, you know, with 300 meters to go, or if a team's going to come down from three games to one and win the NBA championship. And that's right. exactly why sport is what it is. And it's not the WWF where it's this scripted ballet of entertainment. Instead, it's unscripted. And you're seeing a lot of people wanting to find that script to create the certainty to get these accolades to have this ego reinforcement of yep. look at me I'm such a great coach or a great you know uh, master of design training design that my athletes are always ready to run and you know Steve and I had this conversation it's in Steve Robin's blog with Jerry Schumacher I mean he looks like a brilliant distance coach this year for women because all his women who tried out for an Olympic team <laughs> ate it versus you know four, four years ago he just had Karen Shalane in the marathon and that was it and like Lisa yeah. and, and also Lisa oh and like, like oh he, he can't really coach women was a knock on him he's more of a men's coach but then this year in the U.S. One, one of his men in the U.S. made just one of his men made an Olympic team. Yeah. Versus yeah. in the past, he's had guys sweep the 5K, go one, two, three to make the world team. Like Taking Camp was a close, four, you know, fourth, almost right. third many years ago. So, but everyone's like, oh, Jerry's a great men's coach. And now it's the, the tide has turned because of this most recent dramatic success. And he talked to Jerry's. He's a coach. I mean, he just coaches. Yeah. That leads. It's this misnomer that your most recent success defines you as a coach. And that, unfortunately, is you, you, I, you know, Vern, and even Tom Telez and others know is not the case. But here's here's the question I have. And this is not to, to put down Jerry Schumacher or anybody, but what's the measure of a coach? I mean, you, you know, I, I, I put it on, I tweeted it the other day as a measure of a coach. Um, you know, the one one guy, one guy that broke the world record, like one coach, that's his that's his um, his Same email thing. address, his email address, you know, whatever, whatever, something like that. Or is it your body of work and is it your body of work and how many do you did you break or do you break to get the one? You know, the coach that we were alluding to, Steve and I were alluding to earlier in the short time I was there with him. Shit, there was six guys that had run, you know, under under 28:35 in the 10k that came and left you know that that just were destroyed in a short period of time and it, so is that and he's acclaimed as one of the greatest distance coaches in the world and without getting emotional or personal but you see the same thing and you see the same thing time and again if you start with 20 and you end up with one are you a great coach or you know that's i mean I, for me I think there's guys out there, and I, I always chuckle when somebody's coach of the year, particularly strength coach of the year. That's my <laughs> bet, yeah. story. Like these guys, you know. But but I, I believe that there's some guy out in the plains of Kansas, a track coach out in the plains of Kansas that coaches in a school of 600, gets 50 kids out, and has 10 kids running 450 in the mile every year. To me, that's a measure of a great coach. You know, and we never hear about it. You know, but um, and and it's it's that it's that body of work. What what do you do over a sustained period of time? You know, what, what's your guys' reaction to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair point. I mean, if it, it's, I think it's a reflection of our society a little bit. Like, how yeah. do you people know coaches by by how they who they have coached? 
You know, we've we've yep. done it. It's like, oh, Tom Telez, like you're Carl Lewis's coach, so you coach sprinters. Or hey, like one of the most frequently used and bought training books, Peter Coe's. How many people yeah. do Peter Coe actually coach? Right, right, right. And and yeah. it, it it's like yeah, we good put point. we put that emphasis on like, oh, you've done this with this person, and you're the guru. And I think it yeah. comes from this misnomer of, you know, the way coaching is set up is if you're a high school coach, you look at college coaches. If you're a college coach, you look at pro coaches and you just look at who has coached the best person and say, oh, they must know something different or they must know a better way. And I think yeah. all of us being involved in coaching, at least at a high level, has realized is that, you know, when you get really talented people, they're not really good because of you. <laughs> Like blow mm -hmm. your ego when you figure it out. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's, but, it's, but it's all right. I'm fine with that. You know, it, it, and it, you know, our our good friend uh, Danny Mackey will say the same thing with yeah. Nick Simmons. Nick Simmons made yeah. a world team with him. Nick Simmons made a world team uh, with Gags. Nick, Nick Simmons made a world team with uh, Mark Rowland. Right. Right. He he's he was good at all three spots. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the constant was Nick Simmons, not the training, because yes. all Tom three of those coaches have Nick much Simmons. different training. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. And, and uh, uh, yeah, interesting. That's, uh, I mean, uh, I tell my athletes that all the time, or when prospective athletes want to, like, join my, you know, training group or have me coach them, I go, you got to remember, the constant's you. You're the talent. Yeah. I'm My job as a coach is just to help nurture your talent and not get your talent you know, uh, dampened by injury or illness or to be able to like, you know, pull the reins back, so to speak. And I think people forget that they, they want to go to a situation where they're taught, you know, and I mean, getting back on what's the measure of a coach, you know, if you look at a quick tangent, the men's like 1500, you know, we're, we're pretty pathetic overall in, in the quality of depth we have in the men's 15 in sure. the U.S. Like we really only had four guys competing to make three spots on that Olympic team for us who had the standard, who had the mark, who were capable. Right. Right. And, and the answer, the question is why? And I, I know when I looked at it, essentially the milers come from two main camps post-collegiately with gags on the East Coast and Oregon Track Club on the West Coast. And then there's a couple outliers with some individual coaches or some smaller groups here or there, but the bulk of the men milers are in those two clubs. And the bulk of the men milers also come from either university of Oregon, where they just have a surplus of men's milers. So they're being defined by one system of training, one pattern of training. Um, and that's it. So their education, so to speak, is just through this one system. Rather, if you have a more, you know, equitable density, populated throughout the U.S. with different coaches in right. different arenas, and these guys are exposed to different patterns of training or development, we actually, the question should be raised, we might be in a better spot, but yet we're in this kind of, you know, uh, star, super team, superstar team mindset now in sport where we just want to consolidate all the power to yeah. someone who knows the magic formula. And so let's right. all go there so I'll get better rather than saying, Oh, let me go somewhere where I'll be taught. I think, you know, Tara Welling, who I work with, her most astute choice in college was actually going to LMU with Scott Guerrero to a, a mid-major school where she would get a lot of education and teaching from Scott and a lot of attention from Scott. 
you know, and have a good supporting cast, but not be another one of like 16 all-star women right. on the roster. And it actually allowed her to develop and progress relatively injury-free and from year to year and be able to make big mistakes or fail or get scared and lay an egg at a championship race and then bounce back versus if she was, you know, at a power five pressure cooker program where she was just one of many on the roster, maybe she would not have that same development trajectory and wouldn't still be, you know, competing competitively now. In those, in those situations, and I saw that with um, – name not to be mentioned this runner that I'm advising in regard to some of this training, um, training with a, you know, with another guy at group and it's the number one guy is defining the group. So instead of doing the training that he needed to do, he was doing the training that the, the number one runner needed to do. And Oh, by the way, we'll adjust your training. No, it doesn't, that doesn't work either, you know? And, uh, and so what you get is, mixed results you know instead of what fits you so yeah um, and that, it's tough when you have a group i can speak to that personally it's i always tell people really they ask what the training philosophy is i go n01 everyone's an n01 here so yeah. <laughs> we're trying to maximize you and people are used in the scholastic system this curriculum where you're playing the whole season out in the summer before you even know who's really on your roster. Yeah. And, and it's progressions on progressions, like chapters on chapters. And then you take a, a quiz, which is a race, or you take a midterm, which is a, you know, a, a big intermittent invitational. And then the final, which is a conference meet or your championship meet. And there's supposed to be this ideal linear progression. And that's what all these athletes are inundated with through the scholastic system in the NCAA because there's no, just no other way to manage it, you yeah, know, honestly. Yeah. And now you get post-collegially and they're looking for that same environment because that's familiar, but it's a broken system. So when I tell these kids, like, hey, here's how we do it. Like, we might all meet at the same place to do a workout and you guys are going to warm up together. And then everyone might do something completely different on the track and running right. by themselves. And it's like, oh, well, I want to work out with people because that's going to get me better. And the, the, the question has to be raised, like, really? Does it? Or is it just because that's what's familiar? familiar. I mean, some of my best athletes this year have been working out by themselves, you know, on the track 75% of the time, like three out of four sessions. It's just them running solo. And they're able to better, you know, uh, challenge themselves in training or get what they are supposed to get out or can get out of themselves on that day. Right. Rather than this artificially enhanced, oh, let me just hang on to this person and hopefully I get better because my workout time is faster. Well, you know, you know, one of the things I think in bringing this back to coaches' development and education, one of the things that I think is lacking at the college and professional standpoint is when we look at group dynamics, generally yeah. at the professional, you have a very almost homogenous group in terms of time. So everyone's good. So everyone is yeah. able to work out together if we force them into it. And at really sure. good college programs, you see the same thing. But when right. I was coaching high school, for example, the spread of times is so big, Ooh. right, yeah. that not everyone can work out together. So you have to get really good at figuring out individually what each athlete needs because you might have yeah. some athlete who shows up and his workout might be, hey, warm up and do a couple hundreds and you're done for the day and you have another who's doing some big complex workout and trying to run 410 in the mile, right? Sure. And you sure. have this wide range, but I think from a coach's education and development standpoint is because most of uh, us as coaches never have to deal with that problem. Yeah. 
we just yeah. we just default to okay like we have this group like they're running similar times so you know they're all going to work out together and we'll tweak a and b a little bit maybe you'll do yeah. a little less and that's that is individualized coaching according to coaches it's like well i tweaked this and this like you did one yeah. less rep and i think yeah. that's that's pure and utter bs and i think as coaches we have to realize what actual individualized coaching is all about precisely and 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 i probably because my role like i use what i'm doing with swimming i i do the dryland programs but i'm also helping with just coaching development and that and and that's one of the biggest issues that comes up because it's really easy to do in swimming because you because of lane lines and you know and that and you you know you, you don't you don't get to go on a run or go on a 10 mile swim or something like that you know and and uh and understanding that truly it's it's not just okay steve um you do three less okay john you do four more no that's not individualizing it's it's the whole it's the whole program i mean i'm in the middle of that right now designing programs for for university of tennessee men's and women's swimming you know the the dry land and the strength training program and then next week we'll correlate it with you know, with the, uh, with the water training. And I, I mean, I, every day now I just have a giant headache because you don't get taught that. And, 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 and you're right. I mean, I, I think of manage it's, it's coaching management, is it? You're never taught that. Yep. And, and I, I know even as, um, when I went back and coached high school when my daughter was in high school, it wasn't, um, the last year I did coach the 800 meter runner. So I had three different guys. One guy was, you know, one, two guys were trying to break two and the other guy was 155. And I could have had them chase them all the time, but we, we, they, we have to approach it differently. And they were three. Now, sometimes we have, we, we needed to do things together to help them all out. No question, but man, it's, and that was only three. I mean, I, we've all been in situations where it's been 10, 11, 12, you know, and I mean, I, I know when I, back in the, Pleistocene era when I coached at Cal, hell, I had so many workouts going from 800 <laughs> to 10,000. It was ridiculous, you know, and, and it's just, but uh, anyway, you know, one thing, and I, I know we got to, we're getting close to the, to the end here, Steve, that you mentioned at gain, that was a tremendous presentation, by the way, I didn't get to tell you, um, you ought to do that as a podcast or something, uh, just kind of talking about what you did and didn't do this year. But one that, one that really struck me, and uh, was um, kind of like the just run girl, you know. That's what I call her. That you, she, you'd ever put a stopwatch on. But I, I'm thinking, like, shouldn't we as coaches give kids, kids, they're not kids, they're adults in this case, the ownership and say, okay, that you come today and like, like, let's say it's swimming, right? This would be, this would be like. Heresy in swimming. It'd be like Martin Luther nailing the things on the on the on the cathedral at Worms. Okay, guys, you're just going to swim today, and I guarantee you, they'd stand there and look at you, like, "Well, just swim," and give them ownership, right? And one kid, and one kid might swim three laps, another kid might swim three hours. Well, what the hell difference does it make? You know, it, it, again, it's that mental thing, isn't it? That you're taking. Owner, I mean, I, I went to, to. I had this workout written out this morning. Again, I'm an old man trying to force, for, uh, to hold off the ravages of aging. I had this workout written out. I went downstairs to the garage park, pulled my car out. And I go, screw this. I'm just gonna 
do a circuit. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you know what? My whole attitude changed. And, and I think we're afraid to do that as coaches because it's, it's we, we, I say coach, athlete-centered, coach-driven, but maybe we're more coach-centered than we'd like to admit. Is that a fair estimation or oh. what? I, I, I think so. so. I think, you know, you brought up a lot of points, Vernon, about, um, you know, the loss of play in preparation. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and and that's important, like just being out there and not having anything highly scripted. You know, I mean, we as coaches and athletes sometimes feel like our coaches and doing their job if they don't have every day and every activity in the preparation calendar highly scripted. I mean, yeah. and I purposely just check out, you know, for a couple of weeks out of the year. Like right now, with a lot of the professionals like, guys, I'm not giving you anything to do. Like you can take two weeks and do nothing. You can... Go rock climbing. You can go hike. You can do whatever you want. Like, if you want to run every day, I don't care. I mean, it's just like I'm not going to prescribe things because we get dependent on this idea that these prescriptions and these dosages of rep sets, volumes, and intensities is going to correlate to some betterment. And yet, you're, you're completely right. Like, we lose that sense of play just as we lose those sense of tactics because we're not letting the creativity allow itself to be fostered in the practice environment nor in the competition environment again we just want everything so highly scripted because that's the day that's the age we live in and you're considered professional and organized and intelligent if you have this very long-term athletic development plan i mean i've seen you know coaches write out two three years of cycles of trainings of every workout and an excel file and like this is how we're going to get you from here to NCAA champion it's like Nine ninety nine times out of a hundred, or maybe ninety nine point nine 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 times out of a hundred, doesn't happen. I mean, we know life is a lot more. Those are Pulitzer prizes for fiction. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, training in life is super messy. I always tell people yeah. when I take on like a new athlete or consider it, it's it's not how talented you are or how you know what your potential lies. It's it's really do I want to like clean up your diaper when you make a mess? Because that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of messes made. <laughs> and do I have the bandwidth to want to change your diaper and help you clean that up versus yeah. get all excited about your talent and your quote unquote potential? And I, it's and it's just me figuring it out, not not being pessimistic, but understanding like there's going to be a lot of good times because you're capable, but there's also going to be a lot of bad times. And that's when you really need a teacher or mentor or coach or guide to help yeah. you recalibrate and, you know, be resilient in those bad times. Well, well, I think, you know, I think it comes down to a couple of things is as coaches, and this gets back to the way we're, we're taught and educated as coaches, we're taught that there's this magic formula and that we need to go by the book. And like, if we do a, we get B and then we get sent out into the real world and we try a, and we don't get B and then we kind of panic and then coaches either go one of two ways. They go more deep into, well, I have to find this formula or hopefully they go into, Oh my God, this is the real world. Like I'm dealing with people. How do I coach people? And I think that's the lost art of education of coaches that no one ever gets. We get the hard science, we get the we get the periodization and junk like that and how to write out plans. And I think there's this notion that coaching has become how to write plans and programming yep. versus yep. actual coaching. There's so much emphasis on programming 
that we lose sight of coaching. And I think if you looked at it maybe, you know, 30 years ago, the emphasis was on coaching because coaches came from a PE background. Teaching or a teaching teaching background, right? Yep. Yeah, foundation and pedagogy. Yes. And they had foundations in this teaching aspect. And I think you don't see that anymore. So that in that in itself has created this idea where everything has to be scripted. If you look at, if you look at the original intention of Fartlick, right? It was was play. It was play. It was play. play. It was unstructured play. (laughs) It's a sign. I saw that with our as unfor- uh, not to be named group. Well, you're, or or the other guy, um, you know, and oh, you do a fartlek session day. So I went thirty seconds. But, you know, that's not what fartlek is. Run it out. Run how you feel. You know, fartlek is fartlek should be almost like race simulation. You know, just like I'm going to sprint right now. You know, yeah. That, or if you're with one, like all right, first one to the tree wins. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's natural. That's, that's play. And that that's how it is. I mean, I remember my high school coach did a brilliant job of this where he'd set out workouts where it would, would be fartlicks and be like, all right, I'm going to follow you guys on the bike and you guys decide when to run hard. And it'd be yeah. like, everyone has to run hard at least once, like pick your time yeah. to, to do yeah. it. And you'd right, have right. certain people be like, oh, I'm going to sprint up this hill or I'm going to take yeah. off down this path. That is rocky and sucks to run on, but we'd be like, all right, everyone goes. And it's like yeah, 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 that yeah. natural play and shifting the shifting the um, the responsibility from the coach dictating to the athlete kind of prescribing for themselves. Sure. Sure. And, it gets, and you saw oh. it magnified like at the Olympic trials even. I mean, with in the women's distance and sprints events. I mean, you know, Kim Conley was I'm gonna make this team in the ten K, did not make the team, bounces back makes it in the five uh, Brenda martinez i'm gonna make this team in the 800 fall you know gets pushed at yeah. an opportune moment bounces back makes the team uh, in the 15 uh, allison felix is supposed to make the team in the four and the two because they yeah. changed the entire olympic schedule around so she could do that double <laughs> and she doesn't make the team wonder in the who two. influenced that <laughs> <laughs> but it's like these things don't happen as scripted and you're exactly right. See we're becoming like C plus plus programmers as coaches. And here's the program. And I, I remember I was talking yesterday to a, a good friend, uh, Bob Williams, you, you know, Vern at the track. And he was talking about a young coach at a program that he used to work at many moons ago. And the young coach is there and he still knows some of the athletes on the team. And he's like, man, this young coach, he's just, he listens to the athletes but doesn't listen to the athletes because the athletes will tell him one thing and say, okay, well, here's the plan today. And it's like, no, 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 you're listening to the athletes and you have to be able to make those changes to the plan based on that feedback in real time from that living, yeah. breathing human being rather right. than say, oh, okay, I hear you, but the plan's still this. And right. it's just, right. you know, it, 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 unfortunately, I mean, there's maybe a lot of causes that is a whole nother podcast we get fired up and talk about. But what it boils down to is, People want this idea of this plan and these action sequences that are going to correlate to a, you know, affirmative payoff. But when you look at the Olympic trials, you know, 88 percent of the people there left as failures. And I, I guarantee you, 80 percent of those 88 had highly scripted warm up routines where they did exactly these drills. They had highly scripted mileage prescriptions throughout the year okay we're going to taper and we're going to go down this this much percent in volume and you know we're going to up your intensity by this much and 
they, they all played the game and yet 88% failed. Like yeah. I, I walked away from that being like, is that really, is that really coaching? Yeah. It, it, I know, I know we got to wrap it up here, but it's, it's interesting being a little older than you guys. And, 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 and I, I don't know why I've just been doing a lot of reflecting and analyzing and that. Um, and, and I think John, you and I had this conversation about the Kenyans the other day, what, you know, and doping and, and all of that, probably up until the late nineties, the Kenyans had very, very little, uh, formal outside coaching. There was, uh, John Velzian and, uh, you know, brother calm, but most of the time it was, it was internally self coach kind of run how you feel. And, and, uh, and then a lot of things changes, change, obviously the emphasis on the marathon, huge amounts of money, so that brought the incentive to dope and all of that. And I don't want to talk about doping today. That's another time that it's going to have to be censored, but um, uh, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But but the interesting thing that I thought as soon as I, I I'll never forget being at Crystal Palace in 1977, and there was a just a uh, there was a couple of Kenyan guys staying there in the dorm, three of them, and they there was just a little patch of about a maybe 75 meter square grass field right outside the dorm there. And, and, and I, and I watched them and they kind of went out for about 10 minute easy run. They came back and literally probably for about 30 minutes, they did cut diagonals, you know, just across boom. And, 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 and once I kind of got what they were doing, it was really playful. So one would take the lead and then another one would take the lead. And, and I thought, what am I seeing here? I'm seeing the same way they race. They race instinctively. So when they feel the pace start to lag, you know, it's a 10K and people thought they were nuts and they throw in a 57. Well, you know, all of a sudden the game changes, right? And we are so scripted. We are so worried about getting, you know, doing that. And my take home from that, going back as a high school coach and a college coach, we never worked on pace. We worked on you know, temp, just like very igloy oriented feeling and tempo and, you know, and that kind of stuff, you know, and I, I, I think that I don't want to come across and I've been accused a lot of this lately of being anti-science. I love the science. I'm infatuated with the science. I'm reading a book right now on the science of the, of the Tour de France. It's fascinating, all the different stuff about bike positioning and all of that. But at the end of the day, you've got to fit to the athlete you've got to fit it to the athlete and you go back to i know we all hold this guy in pretty high regard i think that's what i think that's what bowerman did i i you know i was very influenced by him in my early in my coaching career and and watched some sessions and that kind of stuff and um i i, I think he really fit it to the athlete you know and, and have the balls to be able to do that that you know and that at the end of the day, and, you know, I remember when I was in grad school and coaching at Stanford, hell, at the end of the day, Oregon, you know, and that was 74, Washington State was really good. But, you know, the Pac-8 meet was on the Stanford golf course. And at the end of the day, they were going to race against, they were out there and being able to race against uh, the Kenyans from Washington State. And I don't think they arrived at that by everybody doing the same thing. So that's kind of my two cents worth. <laughs> So anyway, so um, well, guys, we I I I I could go on for hours. I I really appreciate 
opportunity to be on your guys' podcast. I'll have you on mine soon, and uh, maybe we can carry this discussion further. So um, it's uh, been great catching up with you all. So um, um, keep up the great work and keep plugging. As always, Vern, thanks, uh, thanks for coming on. Okay, yeah, thank appreciate you. it, Vern. Thank you. Take care, guys.